turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. Back for a repeat appearance is Peter Thiel. I think that's a name you're going to recognize, but just in case you don't, he is one of the most successful tech entrepreneurs um, in Silicon Valley as a founder of PayPal, um, arguably the most successful tech investor through the Founders Fund and other uh, operations um, and known, I think, most for his initial outside investment in Facebook. Um, I think you're going to find, and if you listen to the previous interview, that he also has serious chops when it comes to philosophy and even theology. Um, so first of all, Peter, thanks for joining us again. Well, awesome. It's always fun to be here. I went back and I re-listened to our last one, and there was so much popping there. I thought, oh, I forgot he said that. I forgot. By the, and by the way, I, do, I would say not a week goes by where I don't hear from some stranger on social media who says, when is there going to be another interview with Peter Thiel? Um, so this, it really hit a nerve with people. I think people really want more of this discussion from you. Well, let's, let's go into it. Okay. So last time you basically introduced people to the role that uh, Rene Girard played in your life. Um, and you kind of took us through how the Bible reads us. We think we're reading the Bible, but the Bible's really reading us. Um, and you can step in and, and like take away the recap from me, but I'll just recap a little bit. Um, and how the scapegoat mechanism is what the pagan world was built on. Christianity exposed the scapegoat mechanism, robbed of robbed it of its power. But now in postmodernism, we have a deformed kind of uh, of deformed out, outgrowth of Christianity, what you call the woke religion, um, which is always in search of victims to defend and always trying to scapegoat the scapegoaters. Does that sound like a pretty fair? Um, summary of our conversation before yeah i think that's a that's you know that, that's a very fair summary uh you know it's it's uh you know there's, there's there's always some sense in which you could say that archaic culture or even sort of quasi satanic forms of government is the past that christianity has abolished but uh you know we're, we're not living in the kingdom of heaven where where um where you know all all these uh, forms don't exist anymore and so uh and so there's still yeah there still are um Girard would say there still are all these kinds of scapegoating mechanisms that people are trying to figure out some ways to get these things to work again. Um, maybe you have to increase the dosage. You know, so this would be like the totalitarian catastrophes of the 20th century where you couldn't just kill, you know, a random witch. Uh, um, in, in, a, in a village, you had to kill uh, millions and millions of people. So it was sort of like this drug that doesn't work as well anymore as people understand how it works paradoxically works less well, but that doesn't mean that people give up on it. They can they can increase the dosage, and then I think it can also uh, it can also go in these very strange um, sort of maybe I'm not sure if hyper Christian is the right word, but sort of modern postmodern ways where uh, we scapegoat the scapegoaters. We uh, um, you know uh, we go after the people who were historical victimizers. So you know in a, in a communist context, it was the uh, it was the um, the bourgeoisie, the aristocrat, the aristocracy, the czar, um, the, the the capitalists, um, and then you know in, in a uh, 
you know, in, in, in a uh, woke 21st century American context, it is, uh, it is uh, the, you know, the descendants of the slave owners, the white people, um, you know, um, the people who are, can somehow be tied to this historical vic vic victimization. And then we, you know, we victimize the victimizers. And somehow that still is always the, the, um, a pretty powerful move in our world. You know, there's, there's often a way to think of um, Nazism and communism as sort of enemy doubles. They're sort of mimetic twins, very, very similar to each other. You know, sort of the Stalin, Hitler, they even had sort of both, both had sort of preposterous mustaches. And, you know, so all these sort of ways um, that they uh, they copied one another. And I think even the, the mass murder in some ways was was mimetically copied from them. But, but you know, one, one important difference is that... Uh, Nazism was always it was always going back to the past. It was sort of pagan, and it was it was the historical victims really were guilty. The Jews, the the handicapped people, the gays, the you know these were these were genuinely the victims. Whereas uh, communism was somehow a little bit more sophisticated, where it it said that uh, um, you know there were all these victims, and we have to go after the we have to victimize the victimizers, and that was sort of like a slightly more sophisticated move. And uh, and I think Girard had sort of this intuition that even though they were, you know, enemy doubles in some ways very parallel, there's something about uh, communism or wokeism that's the uh, that's the more powerful you know threat in our world because uh, it's sort of like it's a second order victimization that uh, still still can work very powerfully. And it it has the power of the gospel. I mean, it's a distorted form. So the way you're describing this, in essence, fascism is a throwback to the pagan order. It's pre-Christian. Uh, we're just going to go back to, you know, killing the outsider. We're going to, you know, kill, kill Oedipus. Um, and communism is sort of post-Christian, but it has that, there's a power to the gospel story. And it, it taps into that power. And it has, this is probably always, you know, it's not a terribly new phenomenon. There's always been, you know, sort of a, uh, a uh, natural way for the gospel to be distorted in this way where, uh, you know, there's some sort of temptation for um, Christians to be more Christian than the other Christian, more Christian than Christ. Uh, you know, that, that, that probably already in the, you know, first, second century AD, someone like Marcion, uh, who, uh, who tried to be progressive relative to St. Paul and say that, you know, the Old Testament God was too violent and he had too many victims. And so we have to radically differentiate the New Testament God from the Old Testament God. And we have to have this sort of more peaceful, uh, loving God of the New Testament. And then, of course, it sort of was a way to have an anti-Semitic undercurrent to it and all these things. But, uh, but you, and, and then you can think of from Marcion to Marx, the sort of a straight line. You have, of course, in Tolstoy, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, the, the Christians will have, you know, will, will have peace in the kingdom of heaven. Here we will have peace on this earth. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do more than the Christians. In some ways, in an, in an American context, uh, you know, I think there is some some kind of uh, pretty straight line from the social gospel of the early 20th century to the social justice of the early 21st century, and they're both, you know, very very entangled with uh, with a certain progressive form of Christianity. Yeah, I, I I think the point you're making, well, you are making it, is essentially that what we see in this progressivism is not de novo. Um, that there's almost like linear descent. You know, you can see the transitional forms. It's not, you know, some brand new, you know, creature that in uh, sort of Protestant mainlineism, um, you go from that to the social gospel, and then the the gospelishness kind of gets dropped out pretty quickly, and pretty soon it's just. I was, I'm thinking about S Salman Rushdie being stabbed 
at Chautauqua. And Chautauqua is sort of, to me, that's the institution where you, it's started by mainline Protestants. It's mainline, it's WASP ideology, then it's social gospel, and then it's simply progressivism. And of course, helpless against the violence, say, of Islamism, because Islam, you know, Muslims are a victim group and therefore, you know, have to surrender to them. So you're emphasizing a continuity that I haven't heard many other people emphasize, that there's, that wokeism wasn't just born yesterday it was born in liberal mainline protestantism you know it's 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 you know the, 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 look there are all these um there are all these ways that i i mean, I, I wrote i when i was an undergraduate at stanford in the late 80s and then law school i was there for seven years from 1980 to 92 uh, started one of these conservative student newspapers we got caught up in a lot of these uh, uh you know culture wars of of, of the late 80s early 90s on campus, and um, and I ended up writing uh, with a friend of mine, David Sachs. We ended up writing uh, this book, the diversity myth, uh, uh, politi- multiculturalism, and politics of intolerance on campus, and it was sort of a, you know, our attempt to do sort of a God and man at Yale, focusing on Stanford. And um, for many years, I I thought you know it was it was in some ways quite good. It was sort of it, it was very comprehensive. We went through all sorts of uh, craziness. Um, uh, it was, it was an enormous amount of work we put into it, you know, um, there was sort of, but for many years afterwards, I had some misgivings where I always felt, you know, it's a little bit exaggerated. Is this really, you know, um, you know, these were just sort of campus hijinks, you know, we're shooting fish in a barrel, uh, showing these ridiculous people with their, their very illogical arguments. And then of course it has somehow had this, you know, this, the, this, uh, it has somehow returned in a in a redoubled way, starting in maybe 2014, 2015, in this uh, you know sort of great great awakening where it's both been a campus phenomenon, but then also a a, a broader a broader American one, and um, and I think I think the 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 sort of critique the two part critique I would have of my book would be of course that one part of it is um, that somehow the arguments aren't quite on those terms. There's you know there's probably a structural part of it where. Uh, you know, maybe the economic opportunities aren't that great where you're, these universities have become these sort of Malthusian places where if you're in a grad school in chemistry and you have 10 people uh, in the lab and only one of them will become a postgraduate student and you have fistfights for beakers and Bunsen burners and, uh, and then if one person says something that's slightly politically incorrect, uh, it's a relief to be able to, you know, throw that person off the very overcrowded bus. And so I, th- I think there's sort of a structuralist, you know, um, sort of uh, pseudo Malthusian dynamic that uh, that I think one one can think that's created a sort of very zero sum um, mm-hmm. uh, nature bared red in tooth and claw uh, kind of uh, diversity politics and uh, and that, that on some level it operates sort of below below the level of reason and then I think there's probably you know if we if we if we uh, that was that was sort of the college campus version and then if we uh, transpose this to the crazed blue cities. Of, um, of 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 the last decade, um, the structuralist, the reductionist structuralist, you know, Marxist or libertarian economic explanation is something that uh, it has something to do with the uh, the runaway real estate costs, where uh, you have this, you know, you have this these sort of insane um, insane housing costs, and maybe um, and may, there's probably some way that uh, this this intensification of um, of identity politics, uh, uh, wokeism, this whole set of things could al- could also be just reductionistically explained in terms of real estate. So, for example, if we if uh, 
if you were sitting in 2007 in Manhattan or in San Francisco when the prices were really ridiculous, you know, the quality was bad, everything was pretty awful in terms of the housing quality, can't build anything new. And you said, you know, you know the prices are going to double. It'll be twice as expensive by 2022. Um, maybe, maybe a correct thing to predict would be you'd have to come up with some really, really crazy ideologies. You know, there's sort of a, there's like a gay version where, uh, well, if you're a gay person in Manhattan, if you leave for Hoboken, New Jersey, you'll get beat up with a baseball bat right away. Or if you're, if you're a woman and you don't like, you know, living in your rat infested apartment in San Francisco, if you were to move to, uh, to Texas, well, you know, you'll be, you know, you might just wake up pregnant one day and you'll be chained to your bed and, uh, you, you can't, no, no way you can leave your rat-infested apartment. And so... And they won't let you get an abortion to deal with it, right? So so they have, they have to tell these horror stories about the realm outside the polis to keep people in the city of man. And so there's there's sort of a structuralist uh, explanation I have where, uh, where uh, yeah, this is, this is maybe what had to happen when the real estate prices went from very high to absolutely insane, ridiculous, ridiculously high that's, that, that it's somehow... Um, it somehow uh, caused caused the kind of uh, uh, the the the, um, the identity politics to go into this, this this really crazed overdrive of one sort of or another. So I think there are these these structural explanations that uh, uh, a lot of the conservative critics of these culture wars don't don't think about enough, and that are you know, sort of one dimension, and and certainly that I didn't think about enough when I wrote the diversity myth back in 1995. Um, but that being said, the the other dimension that I think is is not thought of enough is is this you know is this very deeply christian judeo christian religious religious dimension to it where um you know why you know yeah if it's a zero sum darwinian malthusian uh game that's going on why does it take this specific form you know we still have to say why does why is it so focused on victims why is it so focused on these on these particular things and i think i think that's where uh that's where you know you have you have to think very hard about this religious question. And of course there is, you know, I would say there is, um, you know, there is a dimension to it where, you know, it's, it's not completely wrong within a, you know, within a Christian context. We should, we should uh, have concern for the victims. We should, we should have, there should be some kind of um, social gospel or social justice. It shouldn't be the main things, but, uh, but it is, uh, it is somehow, adjacent enough that uh, it's a very big temptation and then there are the, the ways that it can go wrong should be uh, should be very understandable that's why it's a stronger move right because of, because there is an ethical element here we really should care about victims um, and it gets its power from that for example the uh, what you could say the the sort of non-christian conservative the sort of Nietzschean Ayn Randian I'm not sure neo-pagan that sort of seems non-existent but sort of the the non-religious conservative move is always to say these people are exaggerating. You know, these these victims weren't weren't quite real. Um, the suffering wasn't that bad. And I, I do think that's always a losing move. We should never we should never question that the victims, for the most part, were were very real. It's just uh, what we should question is whether um, you know there's certain ways where we're just uh, creating this perpetual motion machine and creating new classes of victims today. So the strong counter move to the strong move of woke religion is not, no, they're not really victims. 
Uh, no, there isn't any racism. No, women have never been abused. No, gay people have never been mistreated. The, deni the denial, the, which is sort of moving backwards in time, is the weak counter move. You will always lose. You will, al you will always lose that sort of argument. You know, I, I mean, yes, there's, you know, there's the, the 1619 project where, you know, which, 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 when slavery started in the U.S. And then somehow there's a story where, um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to say that the U.S. was fundamentally flawed or that it was, you know, that something was um, irredeemably flawed about that. But uh, it is probably not wrong as a Christian to speak of the or original sin of slavery in the in the founding of this country. And, uh, and you know, if you look at the uh, second inaugural speech by Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, it's in 1865, time of his second inaugural, and then he, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of paraphrase it, but you know, he references back um, to, you know, well, you know, we've had this very bloody civil war and, um, you know, it's it gone, gone on much longer than people would have thought, but we're not going to question God because we obviously had this very great sin of slavery. And, um, and if the war should go on for, you know, 250 years, we, um, because we had slavery for 250 years, uh, we still couldn't question God's, uh, God's judgment on that. And of course, uh, 250 years before 1865, gets you to roughly 1619. So it's sort of like Lincoln is kind of referencing 1619 in his, uh, in his second inaugural. And then if we had 250 years forward of, you know, uh, bloody racial conflict to atone for slavery, Lincoln was saying, yeah, if we're, if we're still fighting in 2115, uh, 93 years from now, that would, uh, that would still, um, we, we couldn't say that, uh, this, uh, this, this was some problem of theodicy that showed that, uh, uh, God was not really good. So I guess the difference between Lincoln's second inaugural and the 1619 project is that Lincoln calls for charity towards all and malice towards none. In other words, it includes the Christian forgiveness message. Yes, they were enemies, they're brothers and they were enemies, but now there's forgiveness. Now we need to forgive one another. Whereas the 1619 project and CRT, it has a doctrine of the fall. It has a doctrine of original sin. It just doesn't have a doctrine of forgiveness. It has no redemption. Yes, no. I think I, I think there's probably something about um, about the question of forgiveness specifically that is really central to this. And then, and I, th I think to even to even talk of forgiveness in, in a sort of in our hyper politicized context, people often think, well, that's just that's again just a way to avoid responsibility, the way not to talk about them. But but uh, but yes, I, I agree with you. There has to be some way to um, to talk about the madness and murder that was the past. And and to also find a way to forgive and and to move on. And Christianity says you have to somehow do both. You know, we can't we can't um, we can't keep the veil, keep some veil of ignorance over the past that's been abolished by by the revelation. And we, we also can't. Um, but then also, uh, if, if 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 we don't find a way to forgive, um, it it will not nothing, nothing will possibly work. I wonder if the accusational style of the current hyper-Christian, ultra-Christian phrases that you and Gerard have used, which I, I like very much, if the accusational power of that has made it almost impossible for the rest of us to talk in a rational way, what I find is in like in conservative circles now, you can't, you can't acknowledge the sin of slavery. You know, in the moment you're doing that, you're woke now. If you say anything about, um, about discrimination, about racism, et cetera, Oh, you're work. You're just joining the crowd that's accusing us. And I don't think we've found a way to talk about it the way you're talking about, which is to say, 
Yeah, slavery was the original sin of America. There was a bloody civil war. That was just given the horrors of slavery. Now, how do we move forward from that? Forgiveness, repentance, whatever. The, the moment it becomes, a, the moment we participate in a dialogue, I find other conservatives are reacting to that like, oh no, you're giving in. Yes, well, it's, it's uh, you know, but again, this is, this is also where, um, you know, again, maybe a Girardian or more broadly Christian intuition is that, uh, is that, um, you know, you can't, you can't whitewash this. You know, it's, it's uh, Abel's blood still cries from the ground. You know, it's, it's not just at that time. I think, I think it's present tense in Genesis. It's still, it's still crying from the ground today. And, um, and, um, and, you know, and, and in some sense, um, yeah, all the blood that's been shed since the foundation of the world, you know, uh, is, is, uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be, yeah, it doesn't seem to be going away. There are all these things where, yeah, it would be nice if we could talk about it less, but I, yeah, I think that's, that's not an option. That's not an option at all. Interesting. Right. You, you know, the blood of your brother cries from the ground. And it's interesting in that passage, Ak is brother. Six times, strong, it's a strong number. God says brother, brother, brother to Cain. So that's suggesting that brotherhood is part of the solution, that the contrast here is he's supposed to be your brother, but you turned him into an animal. You slaughtered him. He goes, you know, because Cain says, well, I'm not supposed to be my brother's keeper. See, that's animal language. Am I, I can't, right, Abel was a shepherd. Am I the shepherd's shepherd? Well, no, no, but you are his brother and you shouldn't kill him. So I, I wonder to what degree, all this, our whole national conversation is really taking place in the realm of politics. And in politics, forgiveness, this is kind of a weak move and apology, and we can't get past it politically. But if we move over to the realm of religion, and I mean revealed religion, I don't mean archaic religion. Really, if we center in on the person of Christ, and on the brother-brother relationship that Christians have with one another, maybe that is the only way forward, that that is, only, that is the only strong counter move, that it can't be done in the political mimetic rivalry. They're so entangled that we really can't have this conversation in politics. We can only have it in a religious theological discussion. What do you think about that? I think if it's in a in a narrow political context, it's always going to get weaponized and, and, and misinterpreted you know, one way or another. You know, I, I don't know, just to go down another version, you know, there's always sort of a question where, where, where did it become too hard for Christians to insist on forgiveness? And, um, and sort of one, 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 one sort of rough candidate uh, uh, where I, I think uh, is, is something like um, the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews, where, um, you know, I think in the 1960s, 1970s, you still had, you know, conversations about the Holocaust in which, you know, Christians and Jewish people would talk about it, and the Christian theologians would say, "Well, you know, you should, you know, you should actually be, find some way to forgive and uh, and and move on." And um, and I think that's that's actually become very very hard to say, even in a even in a religious context. It, you know, it's it's sort of it, it it feels like you're you're recapitulating the anti-Semitism because you're telling the Jews they're supposed to become Christians. Some forgive us in the Old Testament, but you're supposed to somehow lean into the sort of New Testament message of forgiveness. So it's somehow doubly offensive. Um, but then if we, yeah, if we say that there are certain crimes that are so great that um, they can't be forgiven, does that end up, you know, does that be end up becoming, you know, 
and um, and 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 um, an opening for for more and more things like that. And so I think I I, I wonder if there's some some kind of Jewish Christian dialogue that's uh, that's very very important to this. And that when we if we use the word you know the word Judeo Christian is this uh, catch all word that maybe also um, obscures things. And there's things we need to learn from the Jews, and there's things Christians can teach can teach the Jews. There's some some sort of healthier dialogue that would happen if you don't didn't just have this uh, um, this blanket phrase Judeo-Christian. Hmm. So the Holocaust might be the event in the 20th century in which at least in the in the beginning forgiveness becomes it's in some way almost a forbidden conversation in certain contexts. Even even because... among even among Christian theologians, even in a religious Christian context, hmm. and um, and that. Uh, you know, if, again, I, you know, I, I don't think this is scapegoating Hitler, but maybe Hitler was even worse than we thought. That if you say that, you know, one of the, you know, one of the legacies of Hitler was um, to commit a crime so terrible that uh, we we don't think it can be forgiven. And then is that is that is that a way in which, you know, Hitler did more damage to Christianity than almost anything else he did? Yeah. So I I suppose what I'm what I'm hearing you say, reading between the lines, is that. If you talk about forgiveness um, of the great atrocities of of our time, that's that is recast as a revictimization. If you say we need to have forgiveness for the past history of racism, ah, well, anyone calling for forgiveness is essentially revictimizing. That that if you forgive, you are not forgiving a sin. You are denying really that it ever really was a sin. They, they have trouble making the distinction between acknowledging an evil which I think Lincoln did very well in the second inaugural and acknowledging an evil and then saying, yes, but more evil won't solve that. Uh, as opposed to, as you say, whitewashing an evil. Yeah, no, look, there obviously are, are a lot of very fine lines. Um, you know, it's somehow, yeah, someone we need to forgive. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about this, that we don't, you know, so whitewashing is you somehow obscure the history. You don't, you don't talk about the history. Um, but yeah, there has, there has to be some, uh, some way to, to um, to talk about it, and then also also to forgive. Hmm. So in, instead of I said maybe this has to take place in a religious context, and you're saying eh, that hasn't always worked so well. And I take your point. I'm agreeing with you, but it, it, and, yeah, there, there are there are versions of it where I think even the religious context have been tricky. So I wonder to what degree it has to be very focused on the historical person of Christ, who suffered horrible horrible things. And while they were going on, said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they do. I mean, was Jesus wrong? Was he whitewashing what was being done to him? Was he whitewashing what Romans had done to Jews in the past? Was he whitewashing what the Sanhedrin had done to righteous Jews? No, it's fully acknowledging the evil of it and yet forgiving in the midst of it. And it's pretty hard once you're centered on the person of Christ to say, oh, no, forgiveness would be a mistake. That's uh, that's 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 um." That's empowering the injustice. The the most unjustly treated man in history forgave. Yes, there, there's some sense in which you know they they did not fully know what they were doing because it was it was sort of a mob phenomenon. It was a it was some kind of you know I don't know, say the, the mob was demonically possessed. There was there was some sense in which um, you know they um, they weren't really uh, anywhere close to close to their their senses. And that's, you know, and so if, if, uh, yeah, if humans were these, um, you know, omniscient beings who could understand things in this perfectly rational way, 
then uh, then maybe forgiveness is, would be harder because people actually knew exactly what they were doing. And there obviously wow. there was obviously a very large and this is you know this is always the you know a certain version where you, know, you can't demons can't be forgiven because they somehow have perfect rational foreknowledge. Um, and then um, and then there's a way that uh, uh, humans simply don't. And then we're, we're caught up in crazy mimetic dynamics. You know, the... the uh... Yeah, the demons know, right? James says they believe in God, but they shudder. But humans are ignorance. I do think there's something about the ignorance that's, uh, you know, it's it's not, abs it's again, it doesn't ab absolve you entirely, but it it's, you know, it's it's one of the reasons you, you can be for forgiven. And, and, then, and then, of course, there are just all these... These these dynamics people get caught up in where um, you know the the um, you know it's I, I think there's always uh, you know what one of the mistakes I think it always would is, is is to make is to is to say that you know if we would have lived in the time of Christ we would have been differently and that's uh, because we would have known better and um, and no you would have still gotten caught up like you know Peter you know threefold denial or you know all you know the the disciples just sort of all ran away, and um, it's um, and you know the 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 Christian story is very very different from let's say the Platonic Socrates story where you know the the myth that Plato wants to tell about Socrates is that philosophy preserved truth and that um, Plato or Xenophon stayed stayed true they stayed they were against the city they resisted the mob and the uh, the New Testament account in some sense deconstructs. The Platonic Socrates account. The, the New Testament tells us what Plato really was doing at the time of uh, when mm. Socrates was being accused. He was running away. He was hiding under his bed. He was saying he had nothing to do with that man, or something like this. And then, it, and then it was just the later mythical reconstruction where there was this, you know, robust system of philosophy that could always resist the mob and that was pure in its rationality and its thought and in its rigor. And uh, and Christianity says that that's not true. Even Peter, the rock on whom the church was going to be built, was was not solid enough. And mm. uh, and and if Peter wasn't solid enough, then certainly we should assume Plato wasn't either. Yeah, that's fascinating. So um, the the idea of the Gospels is the deconstruction. Well, they read they read us. They read us. They tell the truth about us. You you read Peter's motives, but you're also reading Plato. Hmm. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as the American and British ruling elites are turning away from Christianity, they're turning towards Greek philosophy. Um, and I think in some sense, the illusion that philosophy and aesthetics are strong while revelation is weak is was kind of the basis of our civilization's apostasy. We're just going to we're just going to be like Socrates um, and just follow the truth. We're going to follow philosophy, not religion, not revelation. Um, and of course, it it's blind, right? And it's based on lies. Yeah, sure. There are there are yeah. I mean, there's a great deal that one can say sort of about the you know biblical or Judeo Christian thread in 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 the history of the West versus the sort of Greco Roman uh, classical piece. But um, but I yeah I um, like with with Gerard. I'm I'm more I I'm, I prefer the more disjunctive accounts where um, we we think of. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of, you know, the various ways people try to meld them into a single system, whether it was, you know, um, um, Augustine or um, Thomistic philosophy, where you sort of find some synthesis between Aristotle and, um, you know, medieval, uh, medieval Catholic thought. Um, and, um, and I think that, that, you know, maybe in our context, the, the healthier thing is to, is to stress, you know, is to stress the differences. And, um, and that, on the side of 
the um, on the side of the Bible, there is there is a knowledge that you do not have. There's a knowledge about anthropology, psychology, human nature that uh, that uh, that the classics did not have, and um, and then there's also there is also sort of a a uh, you know a very you know it's it is a world in which you're supposed to forgive, you're supposed to have mercy. Um, it's it's a very different uh, a very different uh, picture of how one should act ethically. So I wonder if, to some degree, we as let's say just conservative Christians, very broad term, right? Some Orthodox people who are not part essentially of the left coalition, if we have trouble making the strong counter moves because we're too entangled with pagan modes of thought and pagan metaphysics, so that we're too tied to paganism and unwilling to emphasize the sharp discontinuity you mentioned Marshall. Yeah, there, look, there, are, there, are, there are versions of this that I'm certainly guilty of to varying degrees. You know, I, I, I find myself getting entangled in politics all the time. And it's, you know, and I, I tell myself it's very important. It's like the air we breathe. And then it's, it's also very toxic. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I think there is something about it that's, you know, not precisely divinely ordained, to put it very charitably. That uh, you know the principalities and powers of this world, you know there there are ways they can be, you know, um, they can uh, somehow be accommodative to the church, and there are all these ways where you know where they're where they're quite at odds with it, and uh, and um, and you know we 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 need we still need some kind of the old sacred structures of the old violent structures to make things work, even though. Um, and we shouldn't get rid of them altogether. That will lead to pandemonium. But you mean like we can't abolish? You're saying we can't abolish the state, for example? Is that is that what you're? I would, I would say maybe one way to say it is the state contains violence in both senses of the word contain. The nation state contains violence. It is it is part of its very being. It's part of its essence is to be violent. But then it also um, limits violence. It is Satan expelling Satan. It's violence limiting violence and. And then, you know, you get all sorts of, you know, kinds of debates where, you know, it's like, uh, you know, God created man and John Colt made him equal. It's sort of my pro-gun, my pro-gun <laughs> argument. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're going to have violence. Maybe maybe the guns can be used to even it out and um, and uh, and uh, make people behave better. And then, of course, there are all these ways where people behave worse. But uh, but, yeah, it's it's very, very entangled. I, th- I, I often, um, again, sort of the. The um, the retro Christian thing that I sometimes like saying more just to provoke people is that uh, I sometimes wonder if I like the Christianity of Constantine more than the Christianity of Mother Teresa, where Constantine was you know um, obviously a very far from perfect person. He uh, um, far far from perfect Christian. Um, he was you know he was perhaps um, honest enough not to convert to Christianity until he was on his deathbed, because as long as he was emperor, he had to do all these very non-Christian things to kind of, to kind of hold things together. And there was, there's something about that, that um, tries to deal with the, um, yeah, the, the violence of the state um, and, you know, the, 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 uh, the reality of an individual Christian life and how, how those things can be reconciled. It was, you know, it was, it was the debate in the middle ages. Could, could the king, you know, could a king ever really go straight to heaven, or was was anyone who was a king? Did they have to spend a lot of time in purgatory because they'd done mm-hmm. a lot of really bad things? So Constantine, as an emperor, as a Roman emperor, couldn't fully be a Christian. I mean, what would he have done 
disbanded the armies um, and said, we're done now. And then the barbarians come. When, when we live in this world that's half pagan. Or, yeah, again, it would, it would have presumably would have looked so weak that, yeah, it would have it would, whatever, you know, whatever order he was able to to, to recreate would have. Uh, uh, yeah, it was like it was like a great deal of violence was needed to to um, to try to sort of hold things together in, in, in a way for another you know century and a half or whatever Constantine bought. So this, I, the word that's coming to mind right now is catacomb, right? Yes. That there's a restrainer, right? This is from Second Thessalonians and something that Gerard talks about a lot. So in some sense, the old pagan world is a restrainer of evil, even though, and it's a source of evil at the same time. Yes. And when that breaks apart, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness yes. comes. Right? And so how do we, how do we be Christians in the world without the catacomb, without the restrainer of paganism, of blood and and violence, um, without unleashing the man of lawlessness. And so there's nothing but violence in the land. I mean, I think that's what you're talking about. Am I, am I reading you correctly? Yeah, I think this, um, yes. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I would say, this is maybe too abstract, but I, I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I think one should always, um, one should always, uh, yeah, we shouldn't try to get rid of all forms of the catacomb, all forms of law and order, you know, all forms of archaic structure and violence because, um, and then, but then we also, we, we also can't rely on them indefinitely because they all have, you know, Christianity is, it, it is historical. It is in some sense, even progressive. And, um, yes. and these structures, um, they have, you know, they have some life appointed to them. And at some point, uh, at some point they will, they will, uh, they will cease to work. And, uh, and you know it's it's possible that something that ends up being being a catacomb ends up uh, being more you know more accelerationist. So you know if if you if you if there were German conservatives who thought that Hitler in the 1930s was catacontic because uh, you were reinforcing the nation state and then that nationalism was was somehow a, uh, would slow down the one world state of the Antichrist, and uh, and then um, in, in 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 these terms. Um, it was quite the opposite uh, that Hitler was such a crazy destructive person that uh, you accelerated it and you created the United Nations, which started as the nations united against fascism and so uh, so uh, so something it was it was not catacontic at all it was just it was just completely accelerationist so sort of a question there's a question whether every um, every uh, every catacomb uh, has a place but then ultimately becomes a false catacomb becomes accelerationist. I know that you're you're sort of a little bit more on you know you tend to think all the sort of antichrist apocalyptic things should be situated more in the sort of preterist uh, first century second century AD thing, and I'm I'm still somehow more in the uh, the uh, I don't know medieval uh, uh, camp where we have to place them a little bit in the future. But but one one um, one literary I'll do it as a literary thing. You can, interpreted prophetically or literally, but, but one literary idea I've been toying with is sort of this, it's always the connection between um, the Antichrist and, uh, and Armageddon. And uh, they sort of, you know, it's you know, the Antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness, uh, slogan is peace and safety, uh, you know, um, Thessalonians 5.3, and then, um, and then uh, you end up with, uh, you end up with Armageddon and somehow the one world state doesn't really 
stop Armageddon. But uh, but the literary thought I've had is that you know maybe maybe the the Antichrist, the way he comes to power, the way you you get the sort of one world state in which uh, people give up on their sovereignty and give up on their freedom and their autonomy um, is that uh, he he tells a very compelling story that we're on a countdown to Armageddon and that the risks are very great and very dangerous and that uh, and that this is this is necessary and so that the Antichrist uh, will actually present himself as a catacontic figure mm-hmm. who uh, who is um, who is preserving order, preserving peace and safety, and um, and uh, and that if we, you know, if you if you perhaps if you talk too much about Armageddon, you are uh, you're secretly pushing pushing the agenda of the Antichrist. Yeah, I, I think I think that's great. I, I, that's that's fascinating. In a very sort of uh, applied tech version, where you know there sort of are obviously all these forms of science and technology that are very powerful, seemingly quite dangerous in the world post-1945. You know, Rene Girard focused on nuclear, thermonuclear weapons, but, you know, we also have, you know, uh, we also have um, variations of AI technology where it could be the, you know, the super duper uh, artificial general intelligence, which is somehow smarter and more powerful than any human being, but it can also be the dumb AI that is sort of, you know, um, the centralized surveillance state. It can be the dumb AI a la TikTok that just deranges the discourse. So it can be a dumb centralized versus a dumb decentralized AI. It can be, um, it can be the, obviously like bioweapons things. There are, there are, um, there are, you know, killer robots. There are all kinds of sort of fairly dangerous modalities of technology. You know, maybe on the left, there's certain kinds of environmental catastrophes, climate change, Things, things like this, um, and then I think the uh, I think one of the sort of ideas that I see gaining a lot more traction in the last few decades is something you could call sort of the precautionary principle that we should be, um, you know, we should be extremely careful. It, people don't quite come out and say that we should be luddite, but uh, there should be a lot of restrictions on developing these new technologies. We need to be, you know, we don't want to, you know. With climate change, we should just, you know, reduce the carbon dioxide emissions. We shouldn't build newfangled fusion reactors or, you know, or um, do geoengineering. So there are all these, you know, there are all these solutions that where you lean into tech. But, but the general precautionary principle intuition is that you lean away from it. You, you, should, you should do a little bit less. We need to dial back the nuclear thing, you know. And then the AI, the AI research, the Silicon Valley version of this is just, it is, um, it's so dangerous. We should just slow this down and stop it. Um, as quickly as possible, and that's that's sort of a big, big uh, Silicon Valley undercurrent. And then um, I was I was reading this uh, this academic paper by uh, by Bostrom from three four years ago, just pre COVID. But uh, the basic argument was, um, yeah, if, if we take these the dangers of these technologies very seriously, you know, we need to have you know global governance. We need to uh, we need to make sure that people with uh, sort of crazy different views are really restricted on being able to, to, to push them and to explore these things because that's, that's very, very dangerous. And because we're living in this fragile world where all this stuff can go wrong. And then, you know, in the footnotes, it's like, yeah, some people will be uncomfortable because it sounds sort of totalitarian and things like this, but, uh, but, but you know, it's obviously worth the risk. And so I think, uh, I think um, yeah, I think uh, something as non-theological sounding as the precautionary principle, um, you know, uh, I would I would place it as a 
as a kind of catacomb for the 21st century, but then we have to also ask whether it is it is the sort of it is the sort of false catacomb that uh, that will be used in in an accelerationist way by someone like the Antichrist. So the warning of apocalypse is used to create power accumulations and institutions, which are actually the bringers of the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 yeah. Certainly, in the biblical account, they don't, they don't, they don't stop it. But, uh, but, but, um, but, yeah, I, w- I would just say that uh, that uh, yeah, the you know, I think I think it is right to be afraid of Armageddon. It's right to be you know have, have a somewhat of a fear of nuclear war. Um, but uh, but you know, there's there is there is the other side of that where we we don't want to to use that as a justification for a society where we're in complete lockdown, where everyone's in a padded room, nobody can do anything, and um, you know where you, you can't develop any more science technology, you can't think, you can't explore ideas, um, and then you know in some in some sense, of course. Uh, I think that the, uh, the the lockdowns that we had for two years in COVID are 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 just an instance of the kind of lockdown we've had on science and technology for for close to half a century, and that something like this has been has been you know the 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 not entirely irrational, uh, uh, very well gra- pretty well grounded fear that has underlied it. But uh, but um, the problem when you when you fo- only think about Armageddon is that you forget about yeah, the totalitarian one world state. So the the challenge is, there are a lot of challenges, but the challenge that I'm hearing you describe is that there are these institutions which are ma- mainly pagan. They restrain evil, but they participate in evil, paganism, archaic religion, etc. And that they, they, they kind of have their place to play, you know, they have their role to play. But there's a final one who says, oh, I'll keep the evil away, but is the evil, right? Um, so... So Hitler, so a lot of people signed on to Hitler because someone's got to fight the commies, right? And Mussolini was fighting the commies and General Francisco Franco was fighting the commies. So there were some, you know, people that, in retrospect, obviously anyone who signed on to that coalition looks completely morally, you know, um, compromised. But what fear led them to think of fascism as plausible? It was the fear of communism. Yes. Um, But as you point out, bad move. Because you, the the people you turned to out of fear of communism were they brought com they brought the bad things that you were trying to avoid. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's very it's very weird. It was somehow um, mimetically entangled. You know, it's it's. I mean, I think the fascists in the 1930s weren't as bad as the communists. They, I mean, they they started copying them, but it was somehow you know they got all all the mass violence ideas probably from the communists in some ways. But yeah, it, some, it somehow was a very bad move. I still like to think that. Um, the 1980s Reagan move was was a somewhat healthy version of this, where you know it was this, you know, this odd coalition of somewhat odd, somewhat incoherent coalition of you know, um, free market economists and social conservatives and defense hawks. And you always ask the question, you know, what does the millionaire and the priest and the general, what do those three people have in common? The millionaire, the priest, and the general. The Reagan, the three parts of the Reagan coalition. They're anti-communist. Opposition. Yeah, anti-communist. Exactly right. Maybe that's a weird negative glue to bind, but but yeah, my my judgment was that was still and, and you, and you see that more Reagan, healthy than it's yeah than than not pulling that off. 
Of course. Um, but you see that in Reagan's foreign policy, especially the support for a Somoza or the support for a Marcos. It's like, yeah, they're bad. Gene Kirkpatrick's the authoritarian versus totalitarian. Precisely. Totalitarians are worse. On the other hand, there is a point at which the, our restrainers are so compromised, so non-Christian that for Christians to align with them, like which we agree, you know, you know, we shouldn't have hid behind the fascists. Um, um, we understand why Christians did, but bad move. There is a time when we have to watch who we align with, um, it, because that might be a false catacomb, a false restrainer of evil, a bringer of a bringer of what we fear. Sure, sure, and there, there may be there may be ways these things are very time limited. That um, the longer you are entangled with these things, the more these things become, you know, mimetically emulative where, you know, um, you know, the, I mean, I don't know, there's some version of this where, uh, where um, the U.S. was very entangled with the Soviet Union after World War II. And there were sort of all these ways our society became more socialist. We needed unemployment insurance. We needed, you know, um, Medicare. And we needed to provide a lot of the same things people had in the Soviet Union because we we're in this sort of mimetic competitive competitive game and uh, there probably was something very important about uh, Reagan trying to bring about some kind of end game because if this sort of mimetic entanglement had gone on for you know another 40 or 50 years um, you know we might have uh, copied a lot more of the bad elements from from the, the Soviet Union than we did and, and of course there's uh, the, sort of there's probably some conservative perspective one could have where we we, we we actually copied more than we did, and you know D.C. is sort of like this bureaucracy, like uh, like Russia in a way that it was not, say. So convergence theory wasn't necessarily wrong, but human agency of one man, Ronald Reagan, essentially made convergence theory wrong by provoking the conflict um, uh, early enough that it was the, the, either we were going to win or they were going to. There win. were still real differences, and so mm. so when we when we won in '89, yet we were not yet. You know, a fully communist country. If it had gone on for another fifty or hundred years, I don't know the sort of the Orwell nineteen eighty four, Oceania versus Eurasia, mm-hmm. that they're all the same. Yes. All right. So where we left off in our last interview was, for, you know, is there a is there a Girardian and maybe I stopped saying Girardian Christian. I, I to the degree that Gerard has, I think, explicated for us a, a dimension to Jesus's teaching that was not clear. Uh, to the church before, is there an off-ramp from this? Now, I asked it as though there has to be an off-ramp, but you might be saying, well, no, um, we've got to deal with Constantine, but we also have our religious life, and that's just where it is for now. We don't need an off-ramp, we ha- but we maybe control the amount to, to which we get mimetically entangled with the mimetic rivalry of the world. So is, uh, and, and Gerard seemed to want to take the off-ramp when he talked about political atheism. Um, so I don't know what the question is. <laughs> I'm throwing, I'm throwing something out there just to get you to react. Gerard was also himself all over the map on this. So, you know, he was, he was a political atheist, but then he also thought de Gaulle was just the right thing for France in the, in the fifties and sixties. And, um, you know, he's probably somewhat pro Reagan, you know, later was a little bit more anti Bush 43. So there, there were all these sort of judgments that he had on, um, on, um, on 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 the um, on the various uh, people, but yeah, in theory, he was a political atheist in that you know 
he he did not think um, the state was divinely ordained and uh, that you know there was no daylight between let's say um, um, the government and and God or or, or something like that. Um, I think um, you know it's always yeah it's always hard to know how one you know how one translates it practically the um, you know probably again probably one of the things that I always find very tempting to do on a personal level with with the mimetic part of the Girard theory is well you know there are all these bad forms of amesis and if you're more aware of them maybe you don't get caught up in them as much you know, as, as, as an investor you have all these mimetic bubbles and markets and don't want to get too caught up in it and uh, and so th- there's there's some there there's always sort of this um, thought I have in the background that um, surely there's some way in which if you're very aware of it that can that can uh, that can that can help and I think it has a certain limited truth but it's 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 striking how uh, Girard's intuition was was actually quite different which was that uh, yeah I have this theory of psychology of mimetic psychology. But, um, you know, a therapist isn't going to help you. Uh, you know, if you want to solve it, you have to actually just go to church. And that was, mm. that was just the advice. You just, you just have to go to church. Mm. Because, because somehow, yeah, the therapist will, you'll, 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 you'll go through and you re- you'll realize all these crazed mimetic things you're in. But then at the end of years of therapy, does it, um, does it help you transcend it? Or does it, uh, does it, just, uh, does it just rationalize it? Yeah, and map it right, and detail it out. And there's it's, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of uh, you know there's always the the thing I think is I, again I don't think psychology's completely a completely failed field, but uh, the um, the very odd thing about psychology is that it gets advertised as self transformation, and then it uh, and then after years of therapy, you're sort of exhausted of paying the bills, you get bored with a the therapist, and it. Uh, it often cashes out as self-acceptance, and one day you just wake up and suddenly realize everything's fine with me, and yeah. uh, and and that's it is there's something odd about something that's yeah marketed as self-transformation, and crashes into into self-acceptance. There probably are versions of psychology that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That can work better or differently, but uh, but uh, yeah, but I think Gerard would have said that somehow. Um, um, Real, real transformation was was religious. It was something like a conversion experience, it was some, it was, and that's something like the great authors, um, you know, had something close to a conversion experience where they they uh, they somehow saw that their former selves had you know had had been completely wrong about the world, and it was it was it was as as as, as powerful as a conversion experience, and anything less than that would not do. Well, this is this is interesting because right, um, mimetic theory allows you to see a lot of your motivations, and then you think, okay, then I'll have a superpower, and I won't be mimetically entangled. But you still are. You just understand why you are, you know, to some degree. But going to church and reading the gospels and imitating Christ is, in some ways, Girardian theory is still philosophy, right? Um, it's a better philosophy. But in the end, reading all the Gerard books aren't going to do it. Imitating Christ. Maybe maybe one way to to summarize it. It's always sort of a question about maybe maybe it's a question about how changeable we are as humans. How much how much can we change about ourselves or or who we are? And I think um, you know I think you can think of the mimetic theory as uh, you know it was somewhere in between 
these uh, these two extremes in psychology or you know maybe broader modernity where you know one one version is something um, that you know th- there's sort of a deep nature and there are these net natural categories of things and you can't change your nature at all and it's things are just completely set by your genes by your environment but, or it's some kind of platonic essence or something like that that's sort of one extreme and then you know I think the other extreme is a sort of romanticist existentialist you, you know, you're free to be whoever you want to be. You can wake up and change everything about you. It's all sort of in your power. And we have these these um, these two very different diametrically opposed things. And somehow the mimetic theory was supposed to take this, you know, somewhat in, in between ground, which is you can't imitate, you can't not imitate, you can't choose not to imitate, you can't choose not to be mimetic. You know, maybe with great difficulty, you can change your role model and... And, uh, and 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 do something like this, but and that that seems to me also to be what the rough rough flavor of a Christian account of, of the self or of psychology or the individual would be is that it's it's not completely unchangeable, um, and it's not it's not easily changeable. That reminds me a lot of Augustine, right? Non passe, um, non passe, non peccari, passe peccari. Right? Um, so we are. Saul on the road to Damascus, or it's, it's yes, there is, you know, um, a, con- a conversion to Christianity is an enormous change. It is one that you're capable of. It's it's in some sense very hard. In some sense, it should you know, it's 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 all you know, you know whether it's God's grace, somewhat some human freedom, you know exactly how that works. It's 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 it's, it's somehow the most important um, change you can make that somehow is a very hard but very possible change for for each of us and that somehow that that somehow has to be roughly roughly the account we have of psychology generally that it's it's all it's neither these platonic essences where nothing can ever change you're a natural slave you're natural whatever right. um and it can't be uh and it can't be some sort of you know sartre existentialism where you know you know one day you wake up and you can just uh uh, choose to jump out the window because that's what you're feeling like. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, it's, you're talking about the hard work of personal sanctification. Um, is if, if there's hope of an off-ramp from Armageddon, it's in that hard place, not in the mimetic entanglement of the, whatever is the great scrum in the world. If we say we have nothing but our death instincts to guide us, that's not very promising. And if we say, no. if we say that it, um, you know, it's just all you have to do, do is go to um, Burning Man and have, you know, a magical evening. That probably won't quite cut it either. So it's, it's somewhere in between. Wonderful. Uh, we've reached the end of our allotted time, but I want to make sure if there's anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say um, that you have an opportunity. I've enjoyed this a great deal. I've, I've really, I, I'm not sure that people understand what kind of spiritual depth. I mean, you're known as a kind of political commentator to some degree and obviously as a tech entrepreneur, but I'm not sure that people are aware that, you know, kind of this Girardian theological, you know, this thought process that you're going through. And, I, and I'm glad you were willing to share it with people. I've been very struck by this idea of the, that every catacomb risks becoming a false catacomb and the, the Antichrist as presenting himself as catacontic. 
I, I really love that. Yeah, you're, you're suggesting that for the next topic of conversation? Or we can start with that or develop it some more. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it works with preterism and futurism because it could be it happened in in the first century, but it keeps happening because the patterns repeat themselves. Something like that. Let's, yeah, let's dig into that more. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Be well. You too.